Club. A podcast where two young women explain the ins and outs of Australian politics. And there's no such thing as a silly question. My name is Justine Landis-Hanley. I am a Melbourne-based journalist and I used to work briefly in politics. My name's Matilda Bosley. I'm also a Melbourne-based journalist and I'm actually a level 22 Pokemon trainer. <laughs> what? In Pokemon Go, yes. Yes, indeed. It gets worse. Coming up on the show today, how did former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd come to Australia's aid and secure us more doses of the precious Pfizer vaccine? I'm sure that was just altruistic and not politically motivated at all. (laughs) Next, speaking of vaccines, we will also try to answer what the fuck happened to Australia's vaccine rollout? We have more than 12 million people across Greater Sydney and Victoria in lockdown. And even though we are almost, what is it, Matilda, five months into the vaccine rollout? It does feel like 400 years, but I guess it is five months. (laughs) A lot of people have been asking, where are all of our vaccines and who's to blame for this? Exactly. Why? Where's the supply, baby? And that's what we're trying. We're going to find the supplier, infiltrate the deal. (laughs) This was a 21 Jump Street reference. I'm going to move on. (laughs) I'm going to move on. I thought you were making a Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego reference. Oh, no, I'm far less hip and with it than that. I was talking about a (laughs) Jonah Hill movie. (laughs) Okay. Well, Matilda first, before we dive into all of that, How was your week? My week was good. As I've said, my brain has been rotted from the inside out with Pokemon Go. Like, (laughs) I wish that I had another anecdote to tell you. That's all that's been going on. I've been going on so many walks because of it. Mm -hmm. But it's like I know I've lost the ability to actually appreciate nature. (laughs) I've just been appreciating. Like, I'm like I thought Instagram did that, but no, no, it's so much worse because Instagram at least you I can go like five minutes without, but then. You know, Pokemon Go, you're like, well, I am walking past a post office, so it's probably a poker stop, so I better like get my phone out again. And then like it's now the poker fest or something. It's five years. And so today it was all arid and desert Pokemon that like aren't usually there. So I had to go and I was meaning to go on a run, but then I ended up like walking for most of the run because I needed to catch those like little scorpions and cactus guys out there. So it happens. You stop looking at me like that. <laughs> it's okay. We're allowed to have hobbies, Justine, just because I'm five years late to the hobby doesn't mean it's not valid. Okay. I, I validate your hobby choices. What I'm if, sorry. What have you been up to this lockdown? Actually, actually, I do have a recommendation for this week. I've oh, been, please. I've been watching um, Never Have I Ever Season 2 on oh. Netflix. It's a show created by Mindy Kaling. Uh, it's really, really great. I highly recommend Season 1 if you haven't watched it already. I don't want to spoil anything. But it's just like about a girl in high school who just wants to have sex and and she's just very nerdy and very relatable and I just I identify a lot. Are you suggesting that our demographic is girls who are horny nerds in high school? I mean they listen to us. Yeah I know that's kind of our vibe isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Okay (laughs) speaking of horny nerds uh if you wanted to support two of your own kind you could head to the old boys club patreon uh it's the way that we're currently able to make this podcast sustainable and keep it going in the long run is the beautiful people who have headed over there and choose to support us you can support us for as little as three dollars a month at www.patreon.com forward slash old boys club pod and we will love you forever and give you one 100 little kisses <laughs> 
If you can't support the show financially, that's totally fine. You can support us by spreading the word of the podcast. If you want to support us at all, you can also just choose not to. <laughs> if you hate us, don't do anything. If you're not a horny nerd, don't feel obliged to do anything. <laughs> you can um, head over to our Instagram and take a photo of yourself listening to the podcast. Share it to your Instagram story. Tag us at Old Boys Club Pod. We love to see it. We share it and we will shout you out at the end of next week's episode. And I'll give you 98 little kisses. <laughs> <laughs> So, Justine, we thought we were familiar, accustomed with all the characters in the Australian political landscape. Yes, yes. But just when we were least expecting it, uh, one of the main stars from a few seasons back has popped up in (laughs) in a big way. It's like a terrible episode of Glee. Okay, no such thing, actually. Almost nothing but terrible episodes of Glee. Uh, Yes, the former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd has swooped in and may or may not have saved the day by maybe or maybe not helping fast-track Australia's Pfizer vaccine rollout. It is confusing. We will break it down. There's a lot of maybes and maybe nots in there. (laughs) And that that theme will continue throughout the segment. Okay, so for those of us who were born after the year 2000... Straight to jail. Vanished. Um, But for those of us who may not remember, uh, the days of Kevin 07 and Kevin Rudd, the Prime Minister. Who is Kevin Rudd? Okay, imagine the world of an omnipresent John Howard. He's been Prime Minister for four to five hundred years. He's got huge eyebrows. they, They shadow over the nation. I'm pretty sure from birth to age 10, we just had Prime Minister John Howard. Like, I didn't know a different world. You, and then you didn't know the times of Keating. I I don't think I did. No. No. But then what is the year? It's 07. I mean, I want to say grade three. And suddenly this, <laughs> this, this bright spark emerges. His name is Kevin. His name rhymes with the year of the election. That honestly probably does a lot more for him than any of the policies he suggests. He rises up, he defeats Howard, he becomes Prime Minister. Pretty soon afterwards, Julia Gillard spills him. He's not Prime Minister anymore. Pretty soon after that, he spills Julia Gillard, his Prime Minister again. Pretty soon after that, actually gets voted out. Turns out you can't have like 5,000 different leadership spills and still get in the next election. <laughs> and then he just, I don't know, potters around doing ex-Prime Minister stuff, goes off to New York for a bit, loves China. I don't know, hard to tell. I met him when I was in New York. Oh my God. Yeah, a few years ago. I was, okay, spill. I, I was, <laughs> speaking of. Speaking of spills. Um, yeah, I was at the Commission on the Status of Women in New York. I was there for it a few years ago. And part of the trip, my delegation that I was with went to his office at like the China um, think tank that he was working at and had a meeting with him for a while. What What did you think of him? Biggest takeaway? I mean, so the, the most interesting thing that I remember from the whole conversation was that he has this incredible ability to switch from being this serious guy talking in a boardroom table to hosting a live video on Facebook. Oh, like like a like a really scary ability to like change between things, which I think is a sign of it being a seasoned politician. I I feel like that like straight policy, then straight handball on TikTok. <laughs> That's right? the other thing he's known for playing handball on TikTok. Yeah. So Matilda. Why did Kevin Rudd come back into the news this week? What did he do? Well, when he's not busting into the headlines with handball, he's busting (laughs) into the headlines by maybe helping speed up Australia's vaccine rollout. Let let me take you all through it. Okay, so the first thing that happens is um, Australia needs Pfizer doses, right? Yeah, first thing to know. Okay, second thing to know, week before last, the Prime Minister comes out saying, I have just organised this amazing 
deal with Pfizer. We're speeding up the vaccine supplies. We're getting all our Pfizer doses early. By like August, we're having a million Pfizer doses a week. Huzzah, huzzah, huzzah. Everyone cheers and says, okay, kind of good. Wish we had this a while ago, but thanks, ScoMo, I guess. Okay. Then third, that Sunday night, Mm -hmm. someone – Kevin Rudd says it's not him, but someone um, leaks the news to the ABC that it actually wasn't Scott Morrison that sort of orchestrated this whole kind of new deal with Pfizer. In fact, it was kind of former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. I'm so sorry. As you're saying this, I'm just picturing Kevin Rudd as Kermit the Frog in the Black Hood, like emerging from the shadows and pulling oh it back. <laughs> like, it's me, bitches. <laughs> it's him as... um. Emma Roberts in that meme of like surprise bitch thought you'd seen the last of me. <laughs> um, so the long and short of what happens was uh, Kevin Rudd was approached by like a consortium of Australian business people who were concerned with how the relationship between Pfizer and the Australian government was going. Mm-hmm. They approach Pfizer. Pfizer's like, come back and talk to me when you have some big guns. They're like, hey, this old mate Kevin Rudd's kind of a big gun. He's like an ex-important person. Let's grab him. He's tottering around New York, running an NGO like every- Fighting for relevance since. Yeah. But used to be important. He's fucking great at handball, so let's really toss him a serve. Um, Kevin Rudd meets, has this conversation with the global Pfizer CEO, the head of Pfizer in the whole world, and the conversation by the sounds of it went a bit like, hey, mate, anything you can do for Australia the CEO is like, oh, well, a few of our factories are like ahead of schedule. I'll see what I can do about maybe getting you those doses. He then writes a letter to Prime Minister Scott Morrison detailing the whole thing. And he was very clear, like, I'm just there as a concerned citizen. I'm not there as like an official government person. So Kevin Rudd wrote this letter. Yes, sorry. Yes. The Rudd man took out a paper and pen and jotted down <laughs> all of his achievements, just neatly summarised in one document just in case. Um <laughs> That gets sent off to the Prime Minister. We don't hear anything much about it until Scott Morrison comes and makes this announcement. And then, once again, Kevin Rudd has flatly denied that it was him that leaked it, but someone leaks this letter to the ABC. And all of a sudden, everyone is heralding Kevin Rudd as the almighty saviour of Australia. He got us the vaccines. He's done everything. Kevin Rudd for Prime Minister, even though it can't happen. But still, we like to believe. Even the former Liberal Prime Minister and resident naughty boy around town, Malcolm <laughs> Turnbull, was on Rudd's side. He put out a fairly amazing tweet. I got it, it here. Okay, quote. Thank you, Mr. K. Rudd, for speaking to the chairman of Pfizer to secure an earlier delivery of vaccines. Staggered the vaccination of Australians was apparently not important enough to warrant a call from Scott Morrison MP or Greg Hunt MP to the Pfizer boss. These are his former colleagues. Did I do a good voice? You did. I, you. It really got the sort of, <laughs> it got the energy <laughs> of it, really. Um, Scott Morrison was like buddies with him three years ago. <laughs> like, it was not that long uh, ago. I mean, Scott Morrison also did like spill okay. Malcolm. Like, yeah, Malcolm maybe Turnbull out of being prime minister. Just dagger in the back, but um, <laughs> I don't know if they're best friends. No, no, I'd say not. Okay, but how did the federal government take this uh, move from Kevin Rudd? Yeah, not great. Okay, um, <laughs> not surprising. I, yeah, they, they weren't like jazzed about someone in them coming and like stealing the whole credit for their like one good win of the vaccine rollout. No, so the federal government put out a statement basically saying, "Look, sure, thank you." K. Rudd for speaking to Pfizer, but we've been speaking to Pfizer a lot all the time, constantly. Your conversation didn't actually affect the outcome, but like, great. Like, Thanks good for job. swooping in. Good job, bud. Uh, but like, uh, 
to a certain degree, of course, they'd say that. So no one was paying that much attention until Pfizer put out their own statement saying, well, appearing to say point blank that Kevin Rudd had nothing to do with it. But what they actually (laughs) said was that they said that Kevin Rudd had nothing to do with the contractual negotiations between Pfizer and the Australian government, which you'll notice no one ever claimed he did. I mean, like, you wouldn't assume that some random, like, member of the public who used to hold public office would be involved in a current government negotiation with an international pharmaceutical company. I'm looking at the signature here. Why does this say <laughs> Rudd? Oh, no. <laughs> no. Well, all Kevin Rudd ever – well, he never even really claimed it. But the, whoever leaked the letter was sort of trying to imply was that Kevin Rudd smoothed the waters with the global Pfizer CEO. And the real crux of it was that there was this – expectation from, you know, these US business people that kind of having an important person calling you up and schmoozing a little bit and showing you a bit of attention is part of the process. And there, I guess this consortium of business people was arguing that Australia, so far the leadership hasn't participated in that process enough. Okay. So at the end of the day, Matilda, did Kevin Rudd actually affect the rollout of Pfizer? It's a good question and one that we probably will never be able to answer. And it's probably not as simple as yes or no in the end anyway. But if you look at the motivations, obviously the federal government wants to downplay his involvement. Obviously Kevin Rudd is wanting to like play it a bit coy, but at the end of the day probably would enjoy people believing that he had a big thing to do with it. And also Pfizer has a motivation to not make it seem like, you know, an important person calling up the boss can like affect the lives of everyone across the world in the vaccine rollout. So it's everyone's statements and everyone's approach has been very understandable. I think it's just going to be a matter of like, who knows, but also, I mean, the timing, the call was in late June. The announcement about the fast track came early July. And in the process of discrediting Kevin Rudd's influence in the vaccine rollout, uh, Greg Hunt and Scott Morrison were detailing like their conversations with Pfizer. And almost as like a side effect accidental result, they had to admit that like, no, they actually haven't called the global Pfizer CEO. They've spoken to the Australian Pfizer representatives. Scott mm. Morrison spoke to, you know, one other high up person, but They actually haven't made that call and a lot of other world leaders had. So, you know, only the Lord knows, but it does look like it didn't hurt. Okay. You mentioned just then that Kevin Rudd has been playing a little bit coy, but, you know, it would be bad if people thought that he played a really big part in the Pfizer successful vaccine rollout. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful thing to have to your name. What do you think K-Rudd's motivations for this whole thing were? Okay. Let me ask you one question okay what political party was kevin rudd from labor what political party is really needing some wins right now labor Mm, yeah i think i I think it would be naive to assume that it never crossed anyone's minds that a former labor prime minister swooping in and appearing to save the day would benefit the opposition that's clearly what the federal government thinks kevin rudd's motivations were yeah right so the day that this was all breaking which it was like a plot twist every hour or so <laughs> um, the health minister greg hunt liberal part of the current government yep. um went on a sydney radio station and he was asked about this letter to kevin rudd and asked whether it actually made any difference could you read out the quote of what he said. Yes, he said. Look, I did chuckle when I saw the story. We received the letter after we'd done the work with Pfizer and we knew the outcome was likely to be exactly as it was, of moving to a million a week. And we did, as a group say, 
Well, we know that once the government announces it, that letter from the former Prime Minister is likely to be put out there. Can you please read a full audiobook for me? That was delicious. That it's, was so silky it's my, smooth. It's my liberal man voice. I loved it. And it was very accurate. Uh, so clearly Greg Hunt was pretty cynical about the whole situation. The federal government clearly views this as, from the start, a political decision for Labor. Whether right. that's fair or not, you know, Obviously, the government would say that. I think everyone can draw their own conclusions of where they sort of sit on the fence. I think on the other hand, I would also acknowledge the fact that Australia really needs vaccines. Mm. So even if there is this political motivation underpinning this, also, you know, it's probably to help a lot of people. Like there's definitely good intentions to it too. I think, yeah, I, I don't – it is one of those things where, you know, like – as a concerned citizen and you had the power to do this, you probably would. So, yeah, I think that that is a good point. Not everyone's evil all of the time. Does it help that it's politically advantageous? Oh, Absolutely. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't hurt, darling. <laughs> so in the wake of this, uh, we had a lot of questions coming in on Instagram and it was also kind of all over social media, a bit as a joke, a little bit serious, of people saying like, well, can't we just have Kevin Rudd back as our next prime minister? Can't is he, he trying be- to be the prime minister? Is he? Can he just be the head of Labor now? Like, could he? Could he? Could he? He can't. Uh, but no. it, it, I mean, he'd have to be like actually an MP to be PM and he's not. But isn't it also kind of a problem that the moment someone connected with the Labor Party gets a little bit of shine on them, gets a few headlines, we're all suddenly jumping to wanting them to be the leader of the Labor Party? I think that it's really reflective of the time that we're in. So people have been quite critical of Anthony Albanese for being too soft on the federal government, for not having enough of a fiery voice in parliament as the leader of the opposition. But it's a really tough time to be an effective leader of the opposition because we're in a global pandemic the government needs to really quickly pass legislation to help a lot of people. So you can't really like oppose a lot of it. And also we have a liberal government that's traditionally really conservative with things like uh, growing the amount of money that's given out to people as welfare payments or Centrelink payments, who's reluctant to invest a lot of money in public health care. Suddenly, doing all of those things that the Labor Party would normally stand behind. So it's really hard for them to stand up and be like, ah, we hate you, federal government. I see what you're saying in terms of like Anthony Albanese has a tough job at the moment, but like I wonder why it took a former Labor leader to get on the phone. Why didn't Labor spot that as a weakness in the federal government's vaccine response? Mm. So I'd argue, yes, it's hard to be the leader of the opposition in the pandemic, but we're not in the stage of the pandemic where the federal government's the golden child Mm. anymore. I hear you. I hear you. Speaking of Anthony Albanese, Mm -hmm. I know that I've already name dropped once in this segment. Do you you want to see this photo of me with Anthony Albanese back when I was in first year uni? I went, I went to a pub and he was the DJ. Look. Stop. That's, you look so hot in that. Can I just say? <laughs> I'm taken aback. Once again, my eyes are drawn away from Anthony Albanese because I've seen a brighter light in the photo. You look great there. You, you look like Rosalie from Twilight. Also, why isn't Anthony Albanese doing more DJing? Like he got more headlines when he was just a bloody politician who also DJed than t- being the leader of the bloody opposition. <laughs> I'll tell you the best part of the DJ Stop, set. Stop, tell amazing. me. So I was at this pub and- in- Wait, did he actually DJ? I thought that was just a gimmick. No, he no, he DJ goes and night? DJs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Stop. but this is what he does. He's like at this, he's at the like stage set up in this pub in Marrickville and he's got like the laptops and I think there's like a turntable and he goes- this next one's for my chief of staff. Press play. (laughs) I'm obsessed. Speaking of vaccines, Matilda. Please don't. 
I re- it's, I'm going to stop you right there. Can't handle it. <laughs> stop it. Cannot Just handle it anymore. episode here. Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. Our vaccine rollout in Australia, not great. Not great. I do currently have a vaccine in my arm that was not recommended to me by health professionals. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sydney is in lockdown. And daily case numbers are either close to or well into the hundreds. Just ask that one guy on TikTok who clearly has a leak from inside the health department. <laughs> yes. Has the daily numbers every day. The outbreak has also spread to Melbourne and we are now all in lockdown. Yeah, not delighted about it. Overall, wouldn't say that ecstatic is in my like top three descriptor words. But a lot of people have been really confused because... We're almost five months into Australia's so-called vaccine rollout, and yet only around 13% of the Australian population have been vaccinated. But to be clear, a lot more people than that want to be vaccinated. They just can't get the vaccine of their choice. Yeah, we don't have an 87% vaccine hesitancy rate. Yes, hopefully not. And this whole situation has led a lot of people to say, look, this is a colossal fuck up on the behalf of the federal government. They had one job. They failed that one job. They didn't get enough vaccines. They didn't do it. They managed it badly. But we wanted to spend a little bit of time this week really drilling down into exactly how much of this is actually due to poor management, poor policy making, poor decisions. And how much is just bad luck? Okay, so we are going to try and answer this question. Try. try just em- really try. Besides the try. And we're going to break up our answer into two big sections. Number one, what went wrong when it came to Australia organising and securing enough vaccines for the country? And number two, what went wrong when it came to the Australian government organising for those vaccines to be distributed around the country. So one is a question of supply, another is a question of distribution. Okay, so turning to supply, we know things have gone wrong, but what would it have actually looked like if everything went right? What was the ideal vaccination rollout plan for Australia? Yes, there is a big misconception that I think that we need to clear up here. A myth to bust right after the gate? (laughs) Right after the gate. Um, Which is that a lot of people think, and, you know, understandably, that the Australian government just kind of forgot to order vaccines. Yeah, like they just miscounted the amount of people that were in Australia. They're like, oh, shit, we have more than like 23 here? (laughs) Bloody hell. There's actually (laughs) Melbourne as well as Sydney. Who knew? (laughs) Federation? Uh, So Western Australia? (laughs) We haven't heard from them in so long. So there was this misconception that we just didn't order enough vaccines because when the time came for the vaccines to start arriving, the biggest problem is that The Australian government's like, oh, we don't have enough vaccines to open the vaccinations up to everyone in the country. So it's understandable why people think that. But in reality, Australia actually bought a huge amount of vaccines last year from various vaccine companies. So let me break this down. The biggest one, and the one that I think we've all forgotten about, is the UQ vaccine. Oh, my gosh. It seems like a distant memory thinking about University of Queensland. I know. So the University of Queensland, they were one of the first science laboratories to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. And they partnered with this company called CSL to distribute them. And they signed a huge contract with the Australian government in September last year to secure 53 million doses of the vaccines for Australians. So, you know, if we have a population of around 20-ish million that's two vaccines for each of them, like two shots each. That's enough to cover, like, all of Australia, mm-hmm. basically. So that was our big deal. 
Australian-made, was looking really successful, could be developed and manufactured in Australia, was going to be a huge win for the country, put us on the forefront. I can see why a government would be inclined to back that one. Yes. We also had a deal for AstraZeneca for another 31... Sorry, let me just do the sign of the cross thinking about AstraZeneca. (laughs) Yes, we also had a deal for AstraZeneca for another 31 million doses of that vaccine. And in total, that means that we had 84 million doses of COVID vaccines ready organised for Australians to be rolled out in 2021. Um, That sounds like more than what we need. Way more than we need. But still, hold on. No, no. Please. I wouldn't. Oh, not for a second did I think we were over. (laughs) In November, the Australian government also announced it had purchased an initial supply of 10 million doses of Pfizer for delivery in 2021. So we had three different vaccine options delivering us like tens of millions of doses, tens of million more than we actually needed as a country ready to go for this year. Hmm, it feels like disaster's about to happen. So we've we've really staked the whole game on these three vaccines. Mostly the UQ1 and, and AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca. Yeah, Pfizer a little bit round the edges just to get us over the line. Yeah. Why didn't we go harder on Pfizer and Moderna? Like it feels like everyone's talking about it now. Why didn't? Why weren't we ordering it out the gate? This is a really good question. And the Saturday paper did a really great piece two weeks ago that explained in more detail why we didn't. But basically, the technology that's used for Pfizer and Moderna, it's called mRNA, it's more experimental. And it's a new vaccine technology that although it can be scaled really rapidly and produce vaccines really quickly. It had never been done before. And so there was a lot of scepticism around whether these new vaccines would actually be successful and could be successfully duplicated at the speed that we needed. I understand that looking back, you know, at the start of 2020. It does make me wonder, though, there was a lot of reports coming out throughout 2020 and results coming out throughout 2020 talking about how promising Pfizer and Moderna Mm. was. Like, I see what you're saying about at the start, it did seem like a riskier option. I just, I wonder why further along the way we didn't sign those deals. Absolutely. And to be clear, also, America in particular, they didn't have the same problem that Australia did with these vaccines. So they backed Moderna harder than anything. They put $2.5 billion into Moderna funding. Put some respect on my girl Dolly Parton's name. She also helped fund. She also put some money towards (laughs) Moderna. So there were people who were backing Moderna. It's not like that was a bad choice. It was just that the advice given to the Australian government was to take like a more conservative approach, it seems. And also we had the capacity to produce UQ and AstraZeneca on shore. So then like there's also financial benefit for us to be a country that's producing these vaccines. It would make sense for us to invest heavily in those ones. And as we're going to get to later, there's also just like practical consequences when you have a vaccine being made in other countries in terms of logistically sending it to Australia. Oh, we know now. (laughs) Okay, so it's seeming rosy like, okay, man, Maybe Australia is not paying enough attention to Pfizer and Moderna, but whatever, we've got backups. What happened to UQ? That feels like it was a big blow. Yeah, no one talks about it anymore. Things were looking great. So during phase one of the trial, the study found that the vaccine gave a really strong immune response against COVID-19, stopped the virus spreading throughout the body. People were really excited and it only caused some really mild side effects like, you know, headaches or flu-like symptoms. Looking really promising. Mm -hmm. But then... The vaccine started to cause participants who were in the trial to get false positive test results for HIV. So to be clear, 
isn't giving people HIV. No, it was not but, giving people HIV. But when you're just doing a sort of test to see if you have HIV, they were testing positive even though they didn't have it. Yes, the vaccine was causing their bodies to produce a chemical that was tricking the test to think that they had HIV. So why is that such a big problem? Because it kind of feels like, oh, my God, the world's in danger, everyone's dying. Why would a little thing like a HIV false positive stop a vaccine in its tracks. Just to be like really clear, the only reason that it was causing this HIV positive test is because the vaccine itself included a tiny, tiny fragment of a protein from a HIV molecule. Like not not HIV, just like it used this part of a HIV molecule and it was just this weird effect that it was causing. So yes, the news comes out that the UQ vaccine is causing these false positive HIV tests. And by December, the Australian government ends its agreement with the company to supply 51 million doses of the vaccine to Australia and UQ stops the tr- like the trial from progressing. The reason why, and you, you make a really great point, like why when we have this promising vaccine that's causing really strong immune responses to COVID, why would we shut this all down? It's because for two reasons. Number one, if you've got suddenly all these people testing wrongly for HIV, it makes HIV testing really, really difficult. If everyone suddenly got this vaccine and then, you know, have to go to the doctor and get a test, it would be really hard for you and the doctor to work out whether you actually have HIV or if it's caused by this vaccine. And that's also, I mean, like HIV is also a disease that can reach epidemic levels if not treated properly. So if you suddenly have a bunch of people not taking HIV positive test results seriously, you need to be able to trust those tests. Yeah. So that was a really big problem. The other big problem is, and I think that that's something, this is something that we can see now is that we already have vaccine hesitancy for a COVID vaccine. So they've been developed really quickly. People are still coming to terms with the fact we're in a pandemic. Like there's been a lot of stress around vaccines. And so you don't want your COVID vaccine to scare off people, especially people who aren't as knowledgeable about science, aren't doctors or working in the medical profession who don't understand what a false positive test result really means. Well, I mean, even what you just said to me then, like I understand the concept of vaccines, how you use parts of other viruses that are inert that cause no danger. But like even you just saying like, oh, they use a tiny bit of an HIV molecule. Like the, my lizard brain inside is like, ah, no, d- don't. That's scary. You know, yeah. Yes. HIV is terrifying. It's so, not a disease anyone wants to get. Yeah. So, I mean, you wouldn't want that to be the dialogue going about about vaccines. Like HIV attached to the word COVID vaccines, probably not ideal. Yes. And UQ and CSL, the companies involved in producing this vaccine, they both said like, you know, the problem could have been fixed with more time and money, but why would you want to invest in trying to fix it when you had all these really successful other vaccines going on in the world that we have contracts with, like AstraZeneca, that were producing great results that wouldn't require that extra time and money to go into them. Like We have to remember that December 2020, we're really just trying to secure the best vaccine for Australia. There are plenty of options out there. We're trying to do it as fast as possible. It's better to go and secure other vaccine deals than try to like spend a lot of time maybe fixing this vaccine. Okay, so Australia's taken an absolute bloody blow to its vaccine rollout plan. Um, UQ's gone south 
that's not viable. How does the government respond? The Australian government responds really quickly. They increase our AstraZeneca order to 53.8 million doses. In January of this year, Australia also confirmed an advance order to get 51 million doses of this other vaccine called Novavax, which, you know, no one's really talked about since this. So mm. might be coming later the year. <laughs> this year. We don't really know. So it was basically like, you know, we haven't seen whether this vaccine is really successful in trials yet it's still got a little bit of a way to go but if it's successful we're going to get 51 million doses and then in february 2021 the government also doubled the number of pfizer vaccines on its way by 10 million which brought the total to 20 million doses i know you're saying that the government responded really quickly and it clearly they did ramp up our supplies one thing that i do sort of question though is by february we did already have data and results that showed that astrazeneca was less effective at stopping people from catching covid and you know pfizer was up in the 90s kind of in Moderna also was doing really well so I do still question why we were so reticent to really commit to Pfizer why we still were sort of edging around the margins Pfizer was just kind of like to get us over the edge and Mm. AstraZeneca was still the main goal and the problems with AstraZeneca don't end there so AstraZeneca we're up to about April this year, and this is when AstraZeneca starts to fall through. I'm shuddering. Yeah, if you go listen to our first episode of Old Boys Club, it was recorded the night that everything with AstraZeneca started to fall apart. Like 20 minutes afterwards. It was a weird way to start a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so in April this year, we start to see that AstraZeneca is causing blood clots, particularly in people under the age of 60. And suddenly the federal government's health advice is that you shouldn't get AstraZeneca if you are under the age of, I think it was 40 back then. Now it's changed and it's gone up to 60. But the recommendation was that, you know, if you're if you're over 60, you should get AstraZeneca. If you're under that age, you should be getting Pfizer. Once again, tiny, 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 tiny chance of blood clots, even smaller chance that those blood clots would be fatal. But also in Australia, there's a, only a tiny, 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 tiny chance of ever getting COVID. So therefore, the independent body that weighed it up said, eh, it's not worth it, not worth the risk. Matilda got AstraZeneca. Do you see the kind of need in my voice as I'm saying this? No, I was going to say, and you're, and you're fine and you're alive. So Oh, I'm proof. fine. I'm loving AstraZeneca, loving my vaccinated status. I like to sort of just feel superior as I walk <laughs> down the street. Yeah, I made a calculated choice based on health that I really shouldn't have had to make if the government had provided, procured proper supplies of vaccines. But that's the segment. Why don't we get back to it? So AstraZeneca falls through, the government responds really quickly. They secure another 20 million doses of Pfizer to be delivered by the end of 2021, which brings the total number of Pfizer doses that we're getting to 40 million at this point. I mean, I've been giving the government a hard time about being like, why didn't you get more Pfizer? It's not been smooth sailing getting Pfizer, has it? No. So Pfizer is being made overseas, unlike AstraZeneca, which we are producing in Australia. And that's because Australia doesn't have the capacity to produce mRNA vaccines like Pfizer and Moderna onshore here. Yeah, you can't just make it in any vaccine factory. It's like a whole bunch of its own. I I think it's a lab, but yes. I think, well, okay, it's a a giant lab where they're making things on an industrial scale. I'd call that a factory, (laughs) Justine. Semantics aside. Um, Yeah, it's not like you can just start making mRNA vaccines. Like it takes years and years to set up these factories. And what's this we didn't think ahead before the pandemic? Seems right. So Pfizer being produced overseas, it's also just taking a little bit longer than we would like. I think it's on schedule, but we would love vaccine like tomorrow. So for that reason, I think we're feeling all a little bit impatient. But it's taking a while for us to get Pfizer in Australia and we aren't going to get 
a lot of it until it starts to ramp up in August. Something that may or may not have been caused by Kevin Rudd. Go listen to back to the <laughs> podcast. Start of the podcast again. <laughs> Simon Birmingham, who's the government leader in the Senate, he said that Australia has had a problem with getting more Pfizer quickly, though, because Australia is, quote, at the back of the queue. Now, let me explain. This is because he says, quote, European countries and drug companies have favoured those nations who've had high rates of COVID for the delivery of vaccines like Pfizer. So what he's saying there is that countries like Australia and New Zealand, which have had a fairly good run when it comes to COVID outbreaks, we're not seeing the same like tens of thousands of daily case numbers as a number of European countries and countries like the United States have been seeing. And because of that, companies like Pfizer haven't been prioritizing Australia or New Zealand to get the vaccines that are made first. And playing devil's advocate, They should be also like the big countries with heaps and heaps of COVID cases is where the new variants are coming out, which is the Mm. threat to the vaccine rollout that we'll have a variant that suddenly vaccines aren't reactive to. So it's shitty for us. But it also helps us. Yeah. But it also maybe in the long run is better if like the US and South Africa and India India and all the places that these variants so far have come from, but any giant populous country if they can get vaccinated first, it's actually going to benefit us in the long run. I hate saying that. It hurt me inside, but it is true. Okay, so UQ's fallen over. AstraZeneca is the problem child of the vaccine world. <laughs> Pfizer's plausible, it's but coming. It's, hard. It's, coming. it's hard to get its hands on. It's taking its sweet time. Moderna is somewhere in the mix. <laughs> Who knows? Know. Dolly is <laughs> trying to row it over by hand with all the vaccines <laughs> in the back. What? happened to Novavax in all of here? Like, remember when AstraZeneca got, like, hashtag cancelled by the Prime Minister saying, like, only over 40s can take it? Everyone was saying, like, hashtag Novavax till Novavax. Like, wait for the Novavax. We all got so excited about Novavax all of a sudden back in April. Haven't heard a whisper of it since then. Yeah. So I think the fact we haven't heard a whisper since then says a lot. Yeah. It feels like if it was a few days away, Scott Morrison would be up there being like, it's a few days away, that guys. That white horse is riding in. The, uh, the silence on the ScoMo front about Novavax is worrying. It's telling. Me. So we are still waiting on Novavax. The agreement for 51 million doses originally said we were going to get start getting them in mid-2021. It's mid-2021, baby. What's this? I'm looking at my calendar. It is mid-2021. <laughs> it's July. I can't believe I just looked at I you can't see it on the podcast. I looked at my watch You're for like, that I and then said looked at my calendar. calendar. I'm assuming I was sort of it was an Apple Watch situation. So you might be wondering what happened to Novavax. We don't entirely know. But we do know that the company that produces Novavax has been experiencing shortages in the raw materials that it needs to create Novavax vaccines. So it's been having supply problems. And because of this lack of raw materials they need to make the vaccine, it's taking longer to produce enough to send around to everybody. So it looks more likely that Novavax will be available later in the year in Australia. But like you said, the fact that no one's been talking about it, I think speaks volumes to how that is going. Yeah, and also Novavax isn't like the unbelievably high percentage success rates that Pfizer and Moderna have anyway. Like it's still a good vaccine. Any vaccine is a good I'm not say- I'm not saying no to a vaccine right now, but like it isn't like the golden child that the mRNA vaccines are to begin with anyway. Yeah, they've really been they 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 really are like your sibling who gets the A's in class. <laughs> so, can we actually blame the federal government when it comes to supply? I think that's a really good question. On the one hand, you could say, oh, why didn't the federal government organize 
a wider variety of vaccine options. Like why didn't we start larger contracts with multiple companies right from the get-go? Why did we only back from the start the UQ vaccine, AstraZeneca and Pfizer? I think though that if we look at how other countries performed, like the UK and the US, they also only backed like three companies at the start. It just is a bit of luck that they backed the right companies or the right mix of companies. So the US, for example, they backed Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson, 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 Johnson has kind of fallen through. Well, well yeah. I mean, they also have had one fall through, but they did, they had Pfizer and Moderna. Yeah. And they were producing it onshore in Moderna's case, which is fantastic. And the UK, they organized AstraZeneca, but they also signed contracts with Moderna and Pfizer. And they have this other vaccine called Janssen as well on its way. But also, like, these aren't all the only vaccines. Like, Sinovac has been really, really successful for China. Russia's been giving Sputnik to, like, anyone that will have it. Like, (laughs) there's a lot of other vaccines. And so, I don't know. It's still, like, I understand that it's, like, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you sort of look into the future? Why did you just have this bad luck? But I don't know. I don't quite understand why we didn't have like an array of 15 different vaccines to choose from. Sure, I get that. But I also, to play devil's advocate, am saying that no government had an array of 15 vaccines to choose from. And the governments that have been really successful in getting everyone vaccinated and kind of reopening, they just chose right. And it was just a bit of luck. I just wish Scott Morrison had read all those pro-Pfizer vaccine articles way <laughs> back in the day. All left on his desk. Listen to Dolly! <laughs> okay, so Matilda, I've covered the supply. What's gone wrong with distribution? Yes, and I'll be focusing specifically on the federal government's side of distribution because we're trying to decide if ScoMo's in the doghouse or not, right? As opposed to the state's distribution. Yes, which you'll find is much more robust. Um, <laughs> spoiler! So the Australian vaccine rollout was kind of doomed from the start, symbolically, when that beautiful old lady, Jane Malishak, who was the first person in Australia ever to get vaccinated, Mm. uh, ScoMo was with her. He went to give the peace sign, a V for vaccine, and she did it the wrong way and just gave all of bloody Australia an up yours. And what we've come to learn is that this was really an omen of what was to come. (laughs) (laughs) So walk me through the vaccination status as of now. Okay, so Saturday, July 17th, the date of recording, 13.4% of all eligible Australians have been fully vaccinated. That's have all the two doses, about 35%, just a bit under, have had at least one dose. Um, that means that out of all of the OECD countries, which are like countries with a similar economic status to Australia, mm. uh, there's 38 of them. We are 38. Oh, yeah. we're last. No, not good. Yes, we are last. No, it's not good. So, Matilda, I think that we need to clarify first. We're talking about the federal government's issues with distributing the vaccine. What was the federal government's role in the vaccine rollout and how did it differ from the state's role? Yeah, so I think when we look at the vaccination rollout today, it looks very, very different from what the plan for the vaccination rollout was going to be. What was the plan? Okay, so vaccination hubs, which have become a central part of our rollout, weren't really part of like the original main plan. The federal government's idea was that they were going to send in teams to, you know, aged care homes, disability homes, hospitals, get the Pfizer out there. And then they were going to distribute AstraZeneca largely through the GP network, like your own personal doctor. And they would be able to distribute all of those AstraZeneca vaccines. And kind of that's how we're going to get Australia vaccinated. Okay, It was sort of like, maybe we'll do hubs later down the line. 
line, you know, that it's it was all sort of in there, but it was not the central thing. Like you'll remember earlier in the year, we were having conversations being like, um, why isn't Australia doing what the US is doing and turning like footy stadiums and old showgrounds into max vaccination hubs? Why aren't we having like drive-through vaccination clinics? Like we were having all of these conversations about everything Australia didn't have. And the vaccination hubs really came about when we started seeing the cracks in the original rollout. So in the first sort of phase 1A, the Mm. only people that the states were meant to be responsible for vaccinating was workers and patients in state-run aged care homes, which is like a tiny percentage of all aged care homes. The vast majority of aged care homes are run by the federal government. So what was going wrong in the federal government? I mean, it was really slow. There was a bunch of little glitches and problems, but like most of all, it's just like the vaccine wasn't getting out there. We weren't sort of getting up to scratch. And quite quickly, state governments started stepping in and saying, oh, well, we could help out a little bit. And they almost went off, not quite of their own accord, but they definitely went ahead with vaccination hubs, setting up max vaccination hubs before the federal government was fully on board. And it's almost been a bit of a retroactive thing where Scott Morrison is now saying, of course, we support the vaccination hubs. Of course, we're helping setting all of these up. But really, those hubs were a state-run institution. And the GP network has taken a long, long time to sort of ramp up as well. You remember at the start, GPs were saying like, we've set up this whole COVID vaccination room in our clinic. We've, you know, we've got a doctor on full time to give vaccinations and they gave us one box of vaccinations. Mm, We've got like 50 doses. Mm. So there was all of these problems with the vaccination rollout for so long. And we can really trace the expansion of the vaccine rollouts really to the initiative of states to a certain degree, more than the federal government. So one of the groups that the federal government was responsible for getting vaccinated was aged care workers, but there were definitely problems with that. What were they, Matilda? Yes. So aged care workers, they were in phase 1A, the absolute first people who were meant to get the vaccines. They were meant to get the vaccines at the exact same time that the aged care residents got them. But the federal government decided to prioritise the residents because, again, we didn't have enough supply Okay, sure, in February that might be a bit of an excuse, but last Monday Greg Hunt stood up and admitted that currently only 40% of aged care workers have had their first vaccine dose, not fully vaccinated, their first dose. Back in May, you'll also remember uh, there was headlines about disability care residents who were also in that absolute first category. In May, less than 4% of disability care residents had had their first Mm. dose. Basically, every area you look that the federal government was directly responsible for those vaccines being supplied, that's where you see the massive problems. So I think there's a lot of bad luck and just like, okay, that didn't pan out when it comes to supply. It's a lot harder to make those excuses for the federal government when it comes to distribution. And it's worth noting a lot of the aged care workers are now just going to the max vaccination hubs to get vaccinated. That's how a lot of those groups that the federal government was originally going to vaccinate are now getting vaccinated as well. So- There is one other part to the vaccine distribution rollout that we haven't talked about, which is the campaign around the vaccine and getting vaccinated. What's been happening there? Because it hasn't been great. Yeah, no, it's not good. I'd actually rate it pretty bad. (laughs) So um, the uh, first, the problem was there wasn't one for a long, long time. There wasn't a vaccine campaign. No, but also you can kind of understand why, because now the moment that they've put a vaccination campaign out there, everyone's like, what's the point of advertising, telling people to go get vaccinated when there's not enough vaccine to even do it? So there is an argument that a vaccine campaign um, wouldn't have done anything before now anyway, (laughs) which is its own problem in and of itself. But now the federal government has put out 
an ad for the vaccine. Hasn't been very well received. No. A lot of think pieces written about it this Lots. last week. Too many. Well, no, about, about as many as were justified. So the first campaign was just like a bit like meh. It's this thing called arm yourself with a bunch of arms and then like people <laughs> with band-aids on. But like it's weirdly like a lieutenant is in charge of this campaign anyway. So it's like, oh, of course you, an army guy, put out like arm yourself and it just I don't know it feels like Australia's like spent a lot of time uh, with gun laws trying to get people to unarm themselves feels like it would have gone better in America yeah that feels like Texas god that would have oh, been would have oof, gone, gone off in Texas arm yourself and then arm yourself that would be the Texas logo but the big problem was with the second campaign it's a video that was played specifically in New South Wales during their big lockdown and it showed a woman clearly under 40 struggling for breath dying in an ICU bed it's very graphic the implication being she's suffering from COVID, young people can suffer from COVID, go get vaccinated. And the video ends with the slogan, book your vaccination. What do you, what's the red flag that's jumped out to you? I think that the problem here, and it's the problem that a lot of people have had with this ad, is that currently people under the age of 40 don't have a lot of vaccine options available to them. There's not enough Pfizer in the country for people under the age of 40 to easily get vaccinated unless they're a frontline worker. And AstraZeneca, yes, you can go get that, go speak to your GP about it, but not all GPs are willing to prescribe it to people under 40 and also not everyone under 40 wants to get AstraZeneca. Yeah, there's no vaccine she's currently eligible for that is also in line with the official medical advice and that's a problem. Like that's a big issue to begin with and goes back to that thing of like why are we having a vaccine ad campaign anyway if there's no vaccines to begin with? So that messaging has been universally criticised pretty much. Like you don't need to scare people about COVID at this point. We know how scary COVID is. And where I really get to with all of this, sort of running through the whole distribution, the ad campaign, is, okay, when we're talking about supply, there is so much space to be like, you know what, that was just bad luck. You know what, no one could have seen that coming. You know what, we're asking too much of the government. I can wrap my head around that. It, for me at least, on a personal level, we're delving into opinion, becomes a lot harder for me to justify the government's actions and inability to get things right once the vaccines are in the country and we're actually trying to get them into people's arms. Yes, I I can agree with that assessment. I think that there are a lot of things that when it comes to the supply side that was just bad fucking luck, but how we've then responded to that and rolled out the vaccines in the country definitely could have been a lot better. Then again, a lot of the distribution problems would have been solved if we just had more fucking supply. Like, in fairness, a lot mm. of the distribution problems were the fa- was due to the fact that we don't have enough vaccine. So, okay. Okay, maybe some of it's bad luck as well. <laughs> That's all we have time for this week. I think you're looking to me like you're expecting me to go like, oh, God, that yeah. was so, yeah, fair. Oh, my God, that was too much. That's a lot of research. Thank gosh we're done. Thank goodness we're done. Before we go, though, we need to say a big thank you to all of the people who shouted us out on Instagram this week. So thank you to Morgan, The Wasteland Review, Elizabeth, Haley, Lauren, Ariel, Stephen, Ash, Jess, Lizette, Yeah Mabes, Molly, Georgia, and Miriam. And also before we go, it's super important that we acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the land of the 
Boorawang people of the Eastern Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past and present. This land was stolen and never ceded. And we also acknowledge the country that you are joining us from and pay our respects to any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are listening today. Now, the theme music for our show is created by the amazing Alexis Weaver. Our show is produced, mixed and edited by Anthony Furchie and Alex Ty. I'm Matilda Bosley. I'm Justine Landers-Hanley. And, and this is Old Boys Club. Club. Maybe it was us that leaked the Kevin Rudd letter. <laughs> Scott Morrison. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to live while I'm alive. It's my life. life. <laughs> 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 <laughs>